0: Well, I want to I want to begin by first reading the passage that we're going to be taking a look at in full. It is it's Psalm 13. Um, you're welcome to follow along if you brought a Bible. You can open it up and, and follow along that way. You can check out the words as they get projected on the screen, um, or you can just sit and listen. Whatever allows you to best connect. Uh, with this psalm. That's, that's the way I want you to interact with it as I read through it here this morning, as we look at these, uh, just the powerful words and intense emotions and, and really the rugged faithfulness that this hymn uh, brings to us today. So again, this is Psalm 13. I'll be reading from the NIV. You're welcome to follow along in whatever version you've got with you, or again, it'll be on the screen behind me here. <clears throat> psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But... I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. On the surface, Psalm 13 seems pretty straightforward. It's, it's a psalm of lament. It's a, it's a prayer for help, a crying out to God in the midst of crisis. And there are all sorts of, of fancy ways that scholars break down these sort of psalms and, and pattern them out and look at their structures. But I think uh, a pastor and an author named Sam Storms gets it, gets it just right when he looked at the psalm and looked at other lament psalms and said that, that really they all have this same kind of beginning in common. All of these star- psalms start out by, by somebody crying out to God, I'm hurting, they're winning, and God, you don't seem to care. I'm hurting, they're winning, and you don't seem to care. I'm hurting. Something or, or many somethings has gone terribly wrong in my life, and it is causing me a great deal of pain and anguish and suffering. They are winning. My enemies have the upper hand. The scheme of Satan to drag me down is succeeding, and the pressures and the expectations and the lies swirling around me are overwhelming me, and I'm losing the battle to stand on my own two feet. And finally, you don't seem to care. I feel alone and abandoned. Maybe, maybe God, you've forgotten me or, or maybe you've turned away from me. But whatever it is, I'm in a great deal of pain. And unless you do something or say something, then I'm doomed. And then unexpectedly, without any sort of explanation, at the end of all these lament psalms, there is a sudden rush to faith, hope, and love. The psalmist inexplicably declares his or her confidence in God and his worthiness to be praised. It's like a a worship whiplash. It's a 180-degree turn that often leaves us, the modern reader, in two places. One, we might feel kind of a a warm and and good and encouraged connection with what we read there in the psalm. Or at times, it also might leave us feeling cold and, and distant from the Lord. Because for some of us, in verses 1 through 4, that's where we felt a connection. That's where we felt commiseration was in, was in those verses that were full of, of anguish and crying out. And we're not really sure how to get ourselves in to verses 5 and 6. And that's what we want to take a look at today. Now, some of you may be thinking, um, <clears throat> Sam, isn't this kind of a, isn't this kind of a buzzkill? Um, you know, we just got done with Christmas and the New Year's right around the corner. And so, you know, we just had all this merriment and joy. Uh, and, and, you know, we're supposed to be looking at the optimism of 2019. Why is it that right now you think is a good time to be looking at lament? Is this really the time or the place to be looking at Psalm 13? But here's the thing, as, as wonderful as this season is, as wonderful as Christmas is, and all the bright lights and, and merriment and songs and joy and gifts and parties, and I love all of that, as awesome as this time of year is, it's also a time of year where we're tempted and pressured to put forward a a false face of happiness. And for, for some of you, you may have come into this time of year, may have come into the Christmas season with burdens and with pains and struggles that you didn't know how to deal with, but now all of a sudden everyone around you, our entire culture turns to you and just says, be happy, it's Christmas. And, and you're supposed to just go that way and catch up and feel that sort of way. And instead of, instead of f- saying what you're truly feeling and, and, and expressing what you're truly feeling, you don't want to ruin anyone's party, you don't want to ruin anyone's holiday, so you, you push it all down and you keep it all locked up in your heart, and you just kind of tell yourself, you know what, I'll deal with my junk when I get an opportunity, and I won't make anybody else have to deal with it. But here's the problem. That, that kind of a path, trying to handle it all on your own, is almost always a terrible idea. Um, we're not designed for that. We're not strong enough to carry those sort of burdens all by ourselves. And so this morning, I want to invite you to do what might be the very un-Christmas-like or very unseasonal like work of being honest at acknowledging your pain before the Lord. I want to assure you that it's far more disingenuous to our faith, far more disingenuous to your own personal faith, to pretend like everything is okay, instead of being blunt and brutal about what's really going on inside your hearts. You can bring your troubles before the Lord. You can bring your hurts and your pains and the hurts and the pains of your loved ones before the Lord. You can lay what's really going on in your heart at the feet of Jesus, and wrestle with God. And as you do, even though it's hard, I want to encourage you to take heart and have hope, because although we're going to start with these threefold cries of I'm hurting and they're winning, and God, you don't seem to care, we're also going to try to work and seek out the depth of faith that can also get into verse 6 where it says, Lord, I, 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 I sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. So let's take a look again back in verse, or Psalm 13 verses 1 and 2 and see where this text begins. It says, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? The psalmist, who once again, is probably King David, begins his prayer with this cascade of complaints, a deeply personal expression of despair in the midst of crisis. How long, he says four times over, how long is God going to forget him? How, God is gonna, how long is God going to leave him alone, leave him in turmoil, and abandon him to face his enemies alone? One of the unique and I think brilliant features of this psalm is that we're not given the background details of what's going on in David's life. We're we're never given any information on what troubles he's facing or what brought him to his knees before the Lord. And I don't think that there's any need to go searching for them. You see, sometimes when we read scriptures, we get, we get so curious and analytic and, and bogged down in figuring out what the historical context was and, and figuring out all those details so we can see exactly how this is supposed to line up with our life. And we get wrapped up with those details and we push the emotional things into a box and then set it to the side where we don't have to deal with it. And then we can feel really good about the biblical knowledge we've acquired, but we start ignoring the stuff that actually causes our soul's transformation but here in Psalm 13, we're provided no such shelter. We will never know with certainty what the author was facing. Instead, we're left with the jolting and unsettling invitation to ask ourselves, what's going on in our lives that might make us feel this way? How are we hurting? What causes us to cry out, how long, Lord, for ourselves? Maybe you can draw on something from your past, you can remember a time when when there was darkness or something troubling in your soul. Or perhaps this is happening for you right now. You may have come here today with a burden that's too much for you to carry, and a trouble that's too great for you to defeat on your own, and the questions of why and where is God have been on your lips this week, maybe even this very morning as you prayed. If that's the case, then I hope that this morning this psalm can be a gift to you, a way that God is ministering to you even in the midst of when you're wondering where he is and what he's doing. Please trust me, God is there and he does love you. And perhaps Psalm 13 can be the roadmap that allows you to once again circle back into feeling his presence again. How long, Lord, is a cry that can apply to many different circumstances. The enemies of verse 2 could be real people causing you harm, or they could refer to other things causing physical, emotional, social, or economic distress. And it's not only the heart cry for adults. Children and and teenagers often feel this way too. There are kids all over our community and indeed within our own church that that know what it means to feel heartache. They ask how long when, when they or their loved ones get diagnosed with a severe illness or when family life is not what it should be. They feel the pressure of our culture pushing them to be someone or something that, that they don't want to be or do something that they may not want to do. Ultimately, how long, Lord, is an acknowledgement that those who walk with God can certainly go through times of deep pain. Sometimes we're going to feel and really truly be helpless. It's one of the consequences of living in a fallen world that's still besieged by the power of sin and Satan. There are going to be trials and challenges of all sorts and all sorts of awful things that break us in a way that require a power greater than our own to save us and heal us. So in the first two verses of Psalm 13, we get get these three questions that kind of bubble up to the surface, and they're very raw, and they're very real, and they're placed before you. What in your life is not going well? What causes you to feel helpless? And most importantly, where or to who do you turn when you can't take it anymore? What are you going to do when you're hurting and you don't feel very close to or connected to the presence of God? Well, what did the psalmist do? Let's take a look at verses 3 and 4. There it says, look on me and answer, Lord my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. In verses 1 and 2, we noted that the psalmist felt desperate and helpless, and he was hurt by God seemingly being absent and uncaring in regards to his plight. But in verses 3 through 4, we see something extraordinary and really kind of beautiful. The psalmist might feel distant from God, but instead of giving up on that relationship with the Lord, he pushes further into it and depends on it. Psalm 13 doesn't say, I'm hurting God, and you're nowhere to be found, so forget you. That's the sort of response that the world would understand. It's the kind of thing that that Satan wants us to say. But instead, in verses 3 through 4, we see the psalmist say, I'm hurting God, and you're nowhere to be found, so I'm going to sit right here and ask and plead and demand that you show up in some way, because I have nowhere else to go and nobody else to turn to. It may seem counterintuitive to keep running to God's and looking for God's attention and care after so clearly expressing your frustration about his absence, but that's exactly what we see here in this verse and almost a one-to-one correlation to the verses before. In verse 1, the psalmist had said that he felt like God had turned his face face away. So in verse 3, he asks God to once again look on him, connect with him again, be close to him again, and bring back the watchfulness that can keep him safe. The psalmist was worried that God had forgotten him and left him alone in the dark and and left him alone with his sorrowful thoughts. And so he asks God to answer him, to give him some sort of insight about what's going on, to speak in such a way that would satisfy his soul and put to rest the anguish in his heart. Give light to my eyes is an interesting prayer. Throughout the Old Testament, when God shows up or or He reveals Himself to somebody, they're overwhelmed with the light of His glory. And so what the psalmist is saying here is, "I, I miss that. I need that back, Lord. I need to have Your presence back in my life in such a way where I become once again overwhelmed by the light of Your presence and blessing. And just in case there was any confusion about what's at stake here, the psalmist makes it clear, if God doesn't act in some way and do something... The psalmist fears that he will sleep in death and fall to his enemies. Now, those enemies may really be real and they may really want to kill him, or maybe it just feels that way. There are commentators who believe that the phrase sleep and death is, is a metaphor for the fears that creep into our lives and take hold of our hearts and minds, becoming what we know as anxiety and depression. The weight of all the psalmist cannot handle and his own, it, it, on, on his own is crushing him. And, and without God's action, without some sort of sense that God's going to show up and do something, he's afraid that he's going to fall further into pain and ruin. Look at me, God. Talk to me. Light up my eyes. I need you. For a little more than a year now, my wife and I have been praying about something very much along these lines. We've cried out how long, Lord, and been frustrated by the lack of clarity and answers from God. Psalm 13 is actually Allison. My wife's name is Allison. Psalm 13 is actually Allison's favorite psalm and has been for quite some time. And so as I prep for this sermon, I went to her and and consulted with her and chatted with her about what she felt and and how she prayed the psalm in in the past and and what it's meant to her. and while we had those conversations, the thing that we struggle with the most right now kept popping up and we kept talking about it. And we decided that uh, maybe that was because God wanted us to share some about it this morning. And so we decided that's what, um, that's what I needed to, to do. We've been trying for a, about a year and a half now to get pregnant. And the relief of not having gotten pregnant during the first few years of our marriage, we've been married for about six years, and, and during the first few years of marriage, we really didn't want to get pregnant because it's a new marriage and, you know, a new relationship, and we were in grad school, and there's all these things going on, and so we're really thankful that that didn't happen then. But that thankfulness has, has dissolved into disappointment and, uh, and concern and discouragement, because now that we feel ready for this blessing, we really want it, uh, we're, we're worried that, that it's not happening. For 18 months, we have prayed for a pregnancy, and for 18 months, the answer has been a cold and voiceless no. We've seen our friends and family, quite nearly all our friends and family, be blessed with children of their own. We've had long nights with tears. We've had family get-togethers that, with, with awesome and amazing baby nephews, and they're awesome and amazing because, because of these little children, and, and we want to be a part of that. We want to experience that for ourselves. We've prayed big, bold prayers, and we've prayed very broken prayers that sound a whole lot like Psalm 13. We don't really have an enemy to speak of, but we definitely know the frustration and the absence that you get to feel through this psalm. We want to know how long. We want to know if ever. Honestly, most days we just want some message from God telling us one way or the other. And rest assured, we started the process of talking to doctors and taking tests, and we'll take all those steps that people do, but ultimately, we believe that this blessing is in God's hands, and for whatever reason, they don't seem to be open to us right now. We decided to share all this with you because we want you to know that in in regards to this particular issue, and we're in verses 1 through 4 of Psalm 13. And don't get me wrong, we're also very aware of just how ridiculously blessed we are. We've got great jobs and health and an incredible community and a beautiful church, loving families. And if any of you follow either of us on social media, you know we've got the world's greatest dog. I'm sorry for those of you that just found out that you're in second or third place or anything. but But life, even a life filled with the love of Jesus, isn't characterized by either-or emotions. Things aren't totally good or totally awful. They are a mixture. There are these bright colors of incredible blessing which bring out our praise and areas of bleak grays in which we experience a lot of pain and confusion and frustration and are left to cry out to God. So if you're here today and you know all too well what it means to pray and feel Psalm 13 verses 1 through 4, we want you to take heart and know that you're not alone, and that you have no need to feel ashamed for having those feelings and those, that conflict within your heart as you seek out the Lord. Whether you cry out, how long, Lord, in regards to pregnancy or illness or mental health or family conflict or loneliness, regrets, identity issues, or whatever it is, your lament does not make you a bad Christian. If you find yourself praying with pain and accusation behind your words, trust me, you're not the only one. You're not an enemy of God or in rebellion to his kingdom if you respectfully, that's a key word, respectfully unleash the rawness of your struggles and fear before him. Going to God to seek the kind of help and salvation that only God can provide is good, even if you have to limp and scrape and cry your way there. And we want to be, we need to be the kind of church community that can lovingly talk about these sort of things. We don't want to be a place where you've got to put on that false face of happiness and everyone has to feel like everything is okay all the time. At faith, we want to be honest with each other about how hard life can be, how scary it is when God seems distant or quiet and, brings, and, and, uh, and, and it's hard to bring ourselves before him. Sometimes we need to go before God and say, God, look at me, talk to me, light up my eyes. I need you. And we want to rally around those who are praying those prayers just as we rally around those who thank God for his provision. I need Psalm 13 verses 1 through 4 in my life to assure me that it is okay and that it is normal and that it is even good to bring struggles before the Lord, even in their most raw form. But I also need verses five and six to lead me away from any self-righteous anger that I might have and into the remembrance and the dependence and the celebration of God's magnificent, unconquerable, unquenchable, unending love. Verse five says, but that, that great conjunction, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. Our overwhelming sorrow captured in verses 1 through 4 is met with the trust with trust in the unrelenting faithfulness and love of God in verses 5 and 6. In verse verse 5, it seems like some sort of corner has been turned, and the crisis all of a sudden is either forgotten or or left behind or is no longer the focus, and suddenly there's nothing but but trust in the Lord and praise for His goodness and salvation. And there's no reason given for this shift in attitude or change in perspective, so we're left wondering, "Well, well, what's happened? What's gone on? What did God do? And here's the funny thing. I think the answer is nothing happened. The psalm offers no account of God's action, no miraculous intervention, no record of God speaking or description of, of him moving in power. For all we know, whatever crisis the psalmist had been facing remained. And yet, despite all that's going wrong, despite the pain and, and the feeling helpless and not being sure where God is or, or why he won't act in the way the psalmist had hoped, despite all this, he makes his way back to being able to declare, I trust in your unfailing love. And I know, God, I know you have been good to me. So in the midst of all of this all of this pain, the psalmist rejoices in the one thing that he knows for sure to be true. And it's not that God is silent. It's it's not that he's hidden or that he seems far away. All of those things are what he's feeling, all of those are what he's ex- experiencing, and all of those are contributing to his fear and his despair, but they are not the foundation on which the psalmist stands. They're not what he ultimately truly believes. The psalmist knows beyond any doubt that God is still worthy of his trust, that he's been good to him in the past and he will most certainly can most certainly be good to him now and will most certainly be good to him in the future and forevermore. Psalm 13 is a journey that starts from a very real place of pain but takes you back into the trust and love of God. The one thing that you can hold on to with every ounce of strength and belief is this. God is good, and he is for you. God is good, and he is for you. When we're suffering and feeling helpless, we must commit ourselves to the process of getting back to the goodness of God. How this happens is going to look a little different for everybody because our circumstances that surround your suffering will influence the way and even how much time it takes for you to get back to and really feel that connection with the goodness of God once again. We have a tendency to read Psalms like, like, like quick fix devotions. We approach a passage like Psalm 13 and we read it in less than a minute, and then ponder it over the course of a 30-minute of devotion or, or quiet time, and then we try to force our emotions to comply with what we've just read. But that may be too much, too fast to really lament and process your suffering. When we're really hurting, when, when, when illness or job loss or, or family conflict or, or some sort of loss happens, when we're really, really hurting, we do ourselves a disservice by trying to make it all right all at once. Most of the pain we experience in life cannot be reconciled and healed in the time that it takes to read six verses. Sometimes that might make us feel guilty. We've got the Bible open in front of us. It says right there in black and white that God is good. And so why can't I connect with that? Why can't I feel that? But one of the most helpful tips that I've ever gotten for reading the Psalms, especially Psalms of Lament, came from a book on prayer by a pastor named David Hanson. And and Hansen, while reflecting on the wild pace that that King David seems to come around here and go from sorrow to satisfied, Hansen reminds his readers that a psalm is a poetic compression. I love that phrase. A psalm is a poetic compression of a much longer prayer. The poem recounts in a minute a spiritual reformation that took hours or perhaps even days of personal anguish. Hanson goes on to say, praying the Psalms changed the aim and order of my prayers. Some of the grisliest Psalms end in hope and, and praise. Often, I cannot wrestle through a problem to honest hope and praise within two minutes. I can, however, hold on to hope and praise as the goal of every prayer, no matter how long it takes and no matter how many emotional or cognitive shifts it takes me to get there. So we can make the truth, God is good and he is for you, the goal of our prayers and the anchor of our struggling and wayward hearts. You don't have to feel it immediately, but you do have to trust it and move toward it. God is good. His love is unfailing. He is worthy of your praise and he understands that sometimes it's going to take you hours or days or longer to really take hold of that hope. Now, I want to be sure that I'm not misunderstood. I am not saying God is good, so just get over it. That is is not anywhere in the Bible. I'm not saying that God is good, so so just get over it. What I am saying is that God is good, so you you don't need to have any fear of pushing further into that relationship and exploring further that, that trust that you have with him because it will never, ever fail you. This is, of course, the very essence of the gospel, right? That God is good and that he is for you. When all other kinds of goodness, all blessings and health and wealth and comfort and safety, when all of these seem to to fail or to fall away, we can still have confidence in the goodness of God who both warned us to expect a hard life and and yet encouraged us to have hope and offered his son Jesus as a way for us to get there. In the Gospel of John, chapter 16, Jesus was talking to his disciples, and he said, A time is coming, and in fact, has already come, when you will be scattered, each of you, to your own home. You will leave me alone, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. And then verse 33, he says, I have told you these things, so that you might have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. None of this is easy. Having having the cry of how long, Lord, in your heart is never going to be easy. But it is, at least for me, and I hope and pray for you too, it, it makes those times more bearable. Those times are made more bearable by the promise that God is good and that he is for me. God is good and he is for you. So what do I want you to do with all this? Well, consider three things this week. The first is just be honest about yourself, with yourself and with others, and especially with God, about what's hard in your life. Commit yourself to always getting back to the goodness of God. Try to answer the question. Seek out the answer to the question, how has God been good to you? And finally, allow yourself the time to explore that question and seek out the goodness of God. It may not happen immediately, and you don't need to feel ashamed if it doesn't. It may take some time and some ministering, but it's worth the time, and it's worth the trust because God is good, and he is for you. Would you please join me in prayer? Jesus, we praise you for the promise of your goodness, and we know that even at, the, through, even though at times in this life, it's hard, and, and this world seems so dark, and we can still have hope because you have overcome the world. God, I pray on behalf of all gathered here this morning who have been seeking you, but for whatever reason have had trouble hearing from you or or connecting with you. Lord, even now in, in these last few minutes of worship, I ask that you would speak to them or reach them in a way that they cannot miss. God, please be close to all of us. We need you, Lord. Thank you for being good to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.